Good morning. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Someone, someone helped me out there. If you got your Bibles, turn to Revelation 14. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 20. Revelation 14, verses 6 through 20. If you don't know, my name is Jimmy Fowler. I'm an executive pastor here at Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, I get the joy and honor of bringing you God's word this morning as we look at Revelation 14. And it's a long passage, so we're, we're actually going to, I'm not going to read it on the front end. We're going to go ahead and just break it down as we're going. But I do want to say that uh, this is a sobering passage. Uh, it's, it's definitely uh, one that was difficult for me to work through as, uh, as I was studying it. Not necessarily because of its complexity or anything like that, but because the messages itself that we're looking at, society really doesn't want to hear that. Our culture really doesn't want to hear about their condemnation. And even as believers, we struggle. We don't really want to share that part of the gospel with unbelievers. We want to talk about the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the graciousness and mercy of Christ, but we forget about the holiness of Christ who comes to judge and will pour out his wrath on unbelievers. So if we look at Revelation 14, 6 through 20. You know, as I was going through this, I was thinking about this theme of time running out, right? And it's a sales tactic that a lot of people use. Whether you're buying a car or maybe you're buying a house, they'll try to say you have to accept the terms of this agreement by 5 o'clock today or I'm moving on to the next person. Or if, like, you're shopping online, right? You shop online, some store, uh, online store, Etsy probably, and you go on Etsy and you put it in your cart, and then, but you don't actually fulfill it. You don't throw in your credit card information. But then all of a sudden, a clock pops up. It's like, hey, you got five minutes. Are you about to lose this item? And hey, if you want, in the next three minutes, you can use this code and save 10%, right? The notion, the idea behind it is to, to give a little bit of pressure to get you to make a decision, to move in the direction that they want so that you'll buy their product. But see, in our text this morning, we see that here. We see that time is running out, that judgment is coming soon. And it's not meant to try to push someone in the sense of trying to win one over on them or try to make them force a decision upon them. But it is, though, warnings out to them. We see in these messages these warnings to, unbelievers, uh, to an unbelieving world that what awaits them is just condemnation. And you need to act. We don't know when it's going to happen because Jesus will come like a thief in the night we don't know when judgment day will be upon us. So settle your affairs now. Because what we're going to see in this passage and what I want us to get this morning is this, that only the people of God will be spared from the wrath of God. Please pray with me. Lord, this is a, a tough passage to go through. But Lord, I see, I see the joy that that those that are in you have, the hope that we have, your grace and mercy that you show. And Lord, how you are true to yourself, that you are a just and holy God, that you are just and holy God and will punish wickedness. So Father, I pray that your spirit would be here this morning, that you'd open our eyes and our ears, that you would change our hearts 
Father? That, Lord, as we, as we hear your word, we would receive it, that we would believe it, and that you would be changing us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Only the people of God will be spared from the wrath of God. So we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 20. We're going to break this down into two sections. First, we're going to look at the messages found in uh, verses 6 to 13. And then we're going to be looking at the harvest, which starts at 14 through 20. So we're looking at the messages and then the harvest. So let's begin looking at verses 6 through 13. As we go there, we see there's, it's broken down into four sections here. We've got this proclamation, this declaration, we've got condemnation, and then we've got consolation. See, I'm a good Baptist. See how I did that? And so we look at this proclamation in verses 6 to 7. It says this, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So first we see we have this angel flying overhead. And so to give you a little bit of a, a background, if you're just joining us, in Revelation 14, so in chapters 12 and 13, we had this beast. We have the dragon and these two beasts that come out of the water. They're waging war upon the earth which means they're waging war against God's people. They're oppressing them. They're pushing them. They're persecuting them. They're trying to, to lead them astray so that they would not follow God's ways, but they'd follow the ways of the world. Right? And so you see in chapter 12 and 13, this push, this push, and it feels like there is no hope. And at the end of 13, it talks about this mark of the beast. This one, as the, uh, whoever has this mark is of the world. They are worldly. They don't believe in Jesus. They're not one of his. Instead of being friends with God, they are enemies of God. And then in 14, as we looked at verses 1 to 5 last week, we see that Jesus stands victoriously on Mount Zion. And with him, the 144,000, which is us, this great multitude, all of God's people, his elect, the people of God that has been redeemed. And so we see this 144,000 standing with Jesus. And they have this hope because he stands on Mount Zion victorious. That he has overcome sin and death. Because throughout Revelation we see this theme of overcoming. Especially in chapters 2 and 3 when it comes to the letters of the seven churches. It's calling us to overcome the world. Overcome these trials. Overcome these temptations. Though it might be easy, it might be easier to give up. It might be easier to give in. Maybe you won't have to have that hassle of it. You won't have to deal with it. You won't have to answer. You don't have to look like you're different from everybody else. You could just give in. We're called to overcome. And now, verse 6 of chapter 14, we see the final warning given to an unbelieving world. And so we have this other angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. I love that. We're going to see three things here. First, the gospel is eternal, right? When we talk about that, it's timeless. It's not antiquated. It's not outdated. It's not just this old book. It's not just this old saying. It is timeless. It is forever. It is, it is relevant for our city today. It is relevant for our country. It is relevant for our world. When we say that the gospel is eternal, we're saying it's unchanging. 
We're saying it's always based on the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he himself lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day and ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. This gospel is unchanging. And in a world that tries to keep adding things to the gospel, adding works to the gospel, adding extracurricular activities to the gospel, we stand and say, no, this gospel is eternal, it is unchanging, it is timeless, and it's only based on Jesus because he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It is only Jesus and this gospel is our only hope. And it says it's proclaimed to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. We've seen that phrase about three times in Revelation. It's really trying to get across. This is not the white man's gospel. It's not the white man's religion. It is not only meant for some people in some socioeconomic situations. It's meant for all. It's meant for every person, every nation, it is meant for the rich. It is meant for the poor. It is meant for those in the U.S. It's meant for those in Europe. It is meant for the entire world. It's not just for one. And it doesn't mean you, one has to be smart enough to receive this. But it has everything to do that every individual, it is proclaimed to all, to every nation and tribe and language and people group. And verse 7, he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So the gospel is eternal. It is for all mankind. And that judgment is upon us. The time is near. You know, oftentimes, it's just, it's just actually it's this beautiful warning to a lost world. You know, oftentimes I see those, those guys standing on the street corner. They got the, the sandwich board sign and it says, judgment is near, time is nigh. And I always think to myself, they probably a little bit, something's going on there. And yet, as I read this, I was convicted about that. I was convicted in my, in, in my cynicism. I was convicted of my cynicism because here an individual that believes in the gospel, that knows what's ahead for those in the lost world, looks to warn and let them know and plead with them. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And here we have the angel saying, judgment is upon us. Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Declare to an unbelieving world that one day you will give God, you will give God glory. You will bend the knee. You will see him for who he is and what he has done. Judgment is coming. And then we have this declaration in verse 8. And another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon has, fa has fallen. So this world... This world that, that doesn't trust God, that's against God, that's against his ways, where the first angels pro, pro, proclaim them, judgment is upon us, judgment is here. Here we have the second angel saying, that which you trusted has fallen. You have trusted in the world. You have trusted in, in, in Babylon. And when we say Babylon, what are we talking about there? 
Are we talking about literal Babylon? The, the, uh, when Babel, yeah, the falling of literal Babylon? Are we talking about it as a symbol for Rome? You know, in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter refers to, to, to Rome as Babylon. So is it a symbol of that? Well, we know as we're talking here in, this, in Revelation, it's this universal declaration. It's this universal call for salvation. So it can't just be this one city. It has to be something that means something universal for all mankind. And as some commentators write, it's this convergence of evil in particular places throughout history. I mean, Mounts writes it this way. He calls Babylon a symbol of the spirit of godlessness that in every age lures people away from the worship of the creator. Hear that again. Babylon is a symbol of the spirit of godlessness that in every age lures people away from the worship of the creator. When we talk about Babylon, we're talking about society. We're talking about our culture. We're talking about those who do not love God, pushing against God's people, mocking them, harassing them, trying to legislate them and trying to force them to live according to the world's standards rather than to biblical standards that we've been called to. When we talk about Babylon, we talk about a world that's, that's trying to overtake the church by infiltrating it, by mocking, by, by teaching our children certain methodologies and theories, by trying to teach our children to not believe in the Son of God or in Scripture. When we talk about Babylon, we talk about this society that continues to push against our hope and say, hold on, it's, you can't just say Jesus is the only way. What about all these other avenues? What about all these other faith groups? What about all these ones? Why can't I just be good enough? How dare you say this about me? And to dare me say that I can only have my salvation in Jesus. Babylon has fallen. And so these that have, those that have been warned, this unbelieving world, They've been warned, they, it was proclaimed, it was declared that Babylon has fallen. Their, their system that they believed in, that they trusted in, that they put their hope in, has fallen. They now see their condemnation. Verses 9 to 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, like we saw at the end of chapter 13, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So now we see their condemnation. And it's those who have the mark who worship the beast, this unbelieving world, those that are aligned as God's enemy, those who do not love God but hate God. And it talks here about this full strength. They'll have this full strength condemnation. You know, my wife Michelle and I, we, we enjoy traveling and we enjoy going overseas and, and we like spending time uh, doing wine tours. 
And so we'll go to a region, we'll try to sample, you know, a bunch of different wineries in that region, and we like to watch the winemaking process. Personally, I probably enjoy the wine tasting process more, but nonetheless, I get to see that wine ta- uh, winemaking process. And oftentimes you'd, you'd see it, and they'd be crushing these grapes, trying to get all the juice that they can out of it, trying to get every last drop. And they would take that, and you'd have this nice full-bodied wine, you'd have this Cabernet or this Merlot, and it was just something that, that tasted, you'd have the full taste in your mouth. But then they would take those skins, they'd take the leftovers, they'd take the skins and everything else, and they would make something, especially in Italy, they'd make something called a grappa. It was this other kind of drink, and it was a little bit more diluted, right? And it wasn't the same full strength of these grapes, See, when we're talking about this full-strength condemnation, John in his mind is thinking about the Greek practice of cutting wine with water in equal parts. So they would cut their wine. But see, here John is saying, no, no, no. This wine is not cut. This wine is not diluted because God's wrath is not diluted. God's wrath will be poured out in its fullness. It will be poured out completely. But even in the midst of that, when we hear God's wrath being poured out, God's wrath is also then, God's wrath is also though measured because it says, here you will drink this cup. Symbolizing that it's a measured wrath that God himself will not give in his mercy, in his mercy and grace, even to unbelieving world. He will not give one drop more than is necessary. I mean, think about it as Jesus drank that cup. Jesus on the cross declares, he says, it is finished, no more, it is done. I have drank the cup of God's wrath. In Psalm 75, talks about, drank the cup of God's wrath to its dregs, to the end. It is empty. And so we think about, we say, wait a minute, God's wrath is given? How is that fair? How is that right? You know, I find it ironic, especially in my life, and I see it in others as well, When we ask that question, how is this fair that God's judgment is upon me? How is it fair that I'm receiving the consequences of my actions? I said sorry, I should be okay. Why am I receiving these consequences? Why am I receiving this justice? It's funny that we say that, but when someone goes against us unjustly, we want to see the full measure of justice netted out to them. And so here we have our holy and just God who has every right to condemn all of mankind. And so he, in his holiness, in his justice, has to deal with sin. And so Jesus himself drank that cup on our behalf. So even in the midst of that, even when we're thinking about how is it, God, that you would do this, well, he himself took it upon himself for his, ki- for his people. In John 18, They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is praying, and he prays, Lord, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And then even as they're coming to arrest Jesus, Peter being ever the impulsive individual that he is, pulls out his sword. And Jesus goes, says to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? See, This is beautiful to me as I'm reading this. When we talk about this wrath of God, this cup of God's wrath being poured out, is that Jesus himself took it upon himself for his people. That he lived a perfect life, a perfect life of obedience. He fulfilled the law's demands. 
And for us, he drank the cup of, the wrath, of God's wrath to satisfy that. So when we come to the Lord's table and you see this, you're reminded, I'm drinking this in remembrance of him. But the cup that I receive from him is empty now because he himself drank it. He himself took it upon himself. Andrew Bernard wrote, writes this, Now this one, Jesus, this one alone, who so drank the whole, presents to the sinners of our world the emptied cup, his own cup, cup emptied. He sends it around the world, calling on mankind, sinners to take it and offer it to the Father as satisfaction for their sins. Come, O oh fellow sinner, grasp it and hold it up to God. Plead it. You are acquitted. It's beautiful when we talk about that. This is the hope, this is the gospel that we're, that we're referring to. Though even though we all deserve to receive that cup, we receive an empty cup. And we present that to God as satisfaction for the law's demands. That Jesus himself took the penalty because he satisfied it. And he paid the penalty for our sin. And it talks about this will be perpetual. It says there will be no rest. It is everlasting. It is eternal. Brothers and sisters, that's a hard message to hear and to proclaim. We have joy because we know our cup is emptied. But for those who, who are not in Christ, the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So we had this proclamation, this declaration, this condemnation, but then we get this consolation, this comfort for those who are in Christ. Verses 12 to 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the, uh, the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So we have this call for endurance. Remember, as we've talked about throughout Revelation, it's talking about overcome, overcome, overcome. And now we see it's like, don't give up. Don't give up in the midst of this. It might feel like there's things coming at you, but this oppression might feel like it's too much for you. This trial may feel like it's too heavy for you to, to carry. This tribulation may feel like I'm at the end of my rope and I have nowhere else to turn. It may feel like, Lord, where are you? Where are you in the midst of this? Have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten me? Have you left me to this despair? It may feel like there's nothing else going on. And yet, we have this call to endure. We have this call to endure. And it talks about in two ways here. Keep God's commandments and keep faith in Jesus. Keep his commandments and keep faith in Jesus. Psalm 1911. Well, actually, I'm going to start at verse 7 here. But Psalm 19 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So we talk about stay, you know, uh, uh, keep running the race, endure to the end, and calls us to keep these commandments. Oftentimes people hear that, they think there's some legalism here. Wait a second. I thought only faith in Jesus Christ. Now you're telling me I have to keep the law? I can't keep the law. What kind of legalism is this? And now, yes, there are some that push it and try to add extra things to the gospel. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about, keeping God's commands because we know that they're good. We know that they're holy. We know that they're just. We know that it's a blessing to us. And as God's people, we we live out. We live out to the glory of God. And we do that then by keeping God's commands. We strive, we're changing. We don't just stay in the same place that we were when when we were converted. There should be this growth in us. And we should be keeping God's command because the law of the Lord is perfect. That's why. It's not because it, it saves us that we're saved by them in our own accord, but because the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Brothers and sisters, as you come to the scripture, how often have you not come to it and been revived in your soul? We're right there, the Lord met with you, the Spirit of God pressed in upon you, a verse or a phrase or even a word or a concept. And yet you were encouraged throughout, reviving your soul. Because the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It it gives us wisdom and how to live by. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And also, verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned. We then see this is what God delights in. And when you live outside of these bounds, you are outside. You are outside the bounds of what the Lord has for you, his will in your life. And yes, there are consequences for that. There are consequences for living outside of the will of God, even as believers. And some of you have have learned that the hard way. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is a great reward. Not just here now, but then now we see here to endure. To endure to the end. You see, the world rejects God's ways. And they're continually trying to to push into us. They're continually trying to to get us to not stand on God's word. I mean, Jason Halopoulos, this uh, Presbyterian minister at University Community Fellowship, I think it is, uh, over in Michigan, he... uh, uh, he had this tweet this last week, and he was talking about when, when our theology is based off sociology, the church loses, right? So the idea behind it is, if one sociology of culture, if society is what is informing our theology, then we've lost track of true doctrine. We've lost track of, of scripture. We've lost track of what we're called to. So an example would be, as a society, society pushes against our position on same-sex marriage. And it pushes back against our, 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 our position against homosexuality. And so some of the church say, well, hold on. Society deems it okay. Society says it's fine. Why can't the church just come alongside and realize the culture has changed? Get with the times. Well, that's just it. We don't. We don't because it is an everlasting gospel. His word is eternal. It is sure. His word is sufficient. It is unchanging. 
It is infallible because it is the very word of God. And so we do not allow society to dictate our theology. And that's why it's important that we are people of, that we are people of the word, that we're studying God's word, that we're involved in community groups and discipleship groups, that as we're reading in devotionals on our own, we're coming away knowing God's law is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And it's hard for society to hear that from us. And it's hard to say that to people. It's hard for me even to preach a message about the wrath of God. I wish I could say, no, God, there is no wrath. What just happens is nothing. But for those of us that are in Christ, we rejoice in the presence of God. But that is not the fullness of the testimony of God. That's not the fullness of, what it, of the gospel. Because we cannot preach about one's salvation without letting them know and warning them about the condemnation that awaits those who are not in Christ. And so we lovingly come to them. We lovingly stand on God's word. We lovingly rebuke. We lovingly push back so that they may be truth and the truth may set them free. And we have this faith in Jesus. We endure. We don't trust in anyone else, in any other system. We don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust it just because I was raised within the church. I must have this salvation. No. We trust in Jesus Christ, the personal work of Christ, what he'd done on the cross, his death, his resurrection, and even now, his intercession on our behalf. So we're called to endure by keeping his commands and keeping faith in Christ. And then in verse 13, we can... This call to endure also gives us this, this bit of hope that we can rest because our hope is secure. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. You see, this is the second of seven Beatitudes in Revelation. The, the first one was in Revelation 1, verse 3, I believe. And so here we have this blessing given to, to us. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. So it's affirmed by the Holy Spirit. And for those who die in the Lord, they die having put their faith and hope and trust in him. Blessed are they because of their hope, because of their salvation. They can rest assured. Oftentimes this passage is read at funerals because for those who, who do die in Christ, they look forward they have this hope and it's a reassurance. It's a reassurance of the hope that we have in the gospel. It's the hope that we have in Jesus. It's, and the Holy Spirit affirms it. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. We will not lose our reward for those that run the race. We will not lose that crown. We will make it to the end. And now we see the harvest. And now we see the harvest starting... In verse 14, now, this is broken down into two. We've got the, uh, the grain harvest, which is of God's people, God's elect. And then we have the grape harvest starting in verse 17 of, of unbelievers. And before we jump into that, I want to read for me the 1689. Because oftentimes as I, as I come to this passage, I, 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 I want us to see there's, there's a bit of a dual nature to this. Because a lot of times we read this and it's either A, we rejoice because we think, well, I'm saved, which is good. We forget we should also mourn because there's also condemnation awaiting others. 
right? And so 1689, chapter 32, paragraph two writes, the end of God's appointing this day, so the day of judgment, is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord, but the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So as we come to that, let's remember that. There is this mercy that we receive, but we do need to recognize that there's condemnation for others. And so in, in verses 14 to 16 say this, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And so we see there's one, and sitting on a white cloud, we know this is Jesus, that Jesus has returned. It was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7 that he would come on a cloud. But now here is the only place in all the scripture where it's called a white cloud. Actually, it's the only time white cloud is given throughout all of scripture. And this white cloud is supposed to be this, symbolize this holiness, right? That he comes in holiness and he comes in judgment. But it's also supposed to be contrasted with other instances of a cloud descending. You see in the Old Testament, you see, you see this pillar of fire that represents God. You see then when Moses would go into this tent of meeting, a cloud would descend. This cloud, uh, cloud, cloudy cloud just sounds redundant. But like, let's just go with a smoky cloud, right? And the purpose behind that, the image of that through, back then, was to say you could not see through it because you could not fully see God's glory. I mean, think about Moses being on top of the mountain. He was shielded. He could only see the back of God. Because to behold God fully, to behold his glory fully, would mean the death of him. Because as a, as a wretched sinner, he could not stand in his presence. And so here now we see Jesus returning in full glory, on full display. The complete manifestation of the glory of God returning, just like he promised he would in Matthew chapter 24. And so we see that he is the son of man, this Messiah as, as royalty, and he's got this crown as his victorious conqueror. And he's got this sharp sickle, which, which just means he's ready. He's ready to get to work without delay. And that word sickle is used seven times between verses 14 and 20. Why is that? Because it symbolizes this complete judgment. There is nothing else after this. When judgment day comes, that's it. There is not another time after that. There's not a little period of waiting. It's judgment comes, it's time for the harvest. And so Jesus comes and he gathers his people to himself. He gathers his people to this everlasting glory and joy. And then we see verses 17 to 20, this grape harvest. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle, ready, without delay. 
And another angel came out from the altar, so the presence of God, before the throne of God. The angel has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, put, it, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So with Jesus, he gathers the elect. He gathers his people. And here we see those who are condemned, those who have the mark of the beast, those who hate God, who oppose God, the clusters from the vine of the earth, so this, this mankind... And it talks about this wine press of the wrath of God that they will be gathered and stomped down. And you stomp down on it and you keep pushing and pressing and pushing and pressing to get every last drop. And it talks about this happens outside the city, outside this new Jerusalem. So within, the, what it means then is that those within Jerusalem, God's elect, who are gathered there, who are in the presence of God, because in Revelation 20, I think it's 20 or 21, talks about it's, not a, it's, it's where God is. Where the presence of God is, there his people would be. They would be in that city together. So outside the city here, now we have the condemned. And it talks about that they're receiving this full condemnation, this full wrath. And it says it goes up to the, the horse's bridle, which an average size of a horse is five to six feet high. And 1,600 stadia, which is 180 miles. So here we have this, this picture, this enormous picture of destruction and despair, of condemnation, of God's full wrath poured out. This picture of that, and this horse with the bridle symbolizes this warfare. So now we have Jesus has conquered. Jesus has won. Jesus has fulfilled what we heard back in the garden in Genesis 3.15. He will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. He has defeated Satan and sin and death. And those who do not have faith in him will be judged accordingly and receive the full wrath of God that they deserve. But for those of us in Christ, Jesus himself drank of the cup. It's a hard word, brothers and sisters. But as I read it, it gives me the sense of urgency. It gives me the sense of urgency because like the individual standing on the street corner, we are called to warn an unbelieving world. We have brothers and sisters. We have family members. We have colleagues. We have those in our neighborhood. We have an unbelieving world that do not know Christ. And so we are called then, we should have this sense of urgency to go to the ends of the earth to make disciples. That's why as a church we are, we are very committed to our mission. And that mission is given to us by Jesus himself to make disciples. Everything else is a byproduct or a distraction. That's all it is. Jesus calls us to proclaim to an unbelieving world and we take that mission seriously to go and make disciples, to go plant churches, to go see the lost redeemed. Because judgment is coming. Judgment is near. And if you are not in Christ, you will receive and drink of the full cup 
of God's wrath. And so we should have this sense of urgency to be on mission, to be proclaiming the gospel to a lost world. But we should also come in full humility. We should be coming in full humility because if not but the grace of God, we too would be trampled outside the city. We too would be trodden. We too would drink the full cup of God's wrath. And it wasn't anything because you were smarter, because you were more intelligent. It wasn't because of any inept goodness in you. It's only by the grace of God that each of us are spared the cup. We should come in full humility, brothers and sisters. As we read a text like this, we shouldn't be rejoicing at God is finally going to take care of all those awful sinners. If it wasn't for Jesus, you'd be there too. We should be coming in full humility and love. That's why we should have this urgency. Because we want to see them spared. We want to see them be able to bask in the glory of God in the new Jerusalem where we can bask in his glory forever and ever, rejoicing in the hope that we have. And so we should have this urgency, this humility. And that means that we, this should be informing our praise here and now. As we are here, brothers and sisters, we, we now have an opportunity to respond in praise. We have an opportunity to together st- sing hallelujah, we are spared. Thank you for what you have done, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We have this opportunity to praise God because in him we have salvation. In him we are co-heirs. In him we receive all the riches of mercy and blessing. Brothers and sisters, this should be informing our praise day and night. Every time we gather together, we should be remembering if not but the grace of God, I'd be there too. As we go, brothers and sisters, I want us to remember that only the people of God will be spared from the wrath of God. And we have a mission as the church, as God's people, to go and declare that to a lost world, to share of his grace, his love, and his mercy to present a gospel that is eternal, unchanging, unfiltered, so that they too may know the hope that we have and that they too may rest knowing that their hope is secured. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for this reminder. I thank you for this reminder, Lord, of, of your goodness, of your grace, but of your holiness and your justice. Father, forgive us when when we have, when we've lacked urgency. Forgive us where, where we've lacked humility. Forgive us when we've lacked praise over the over your work in our lives, in and through us, Father. Lord, may we leave here rejoicing and at the same time on mission, Father. Proclaiming to a lost world your gospel, your goodness, that salvation can only be found in you and you alone. We pray this in your name. Amen.